Good morning, good morning. Happy Easter, everyone. It is good to see you guys and to be here to celebrate the biggest weekend in the church world, at least every year, but also the biggest weekend in the history of the world. You know, on a weekend like this, we aren't just getting together to sing some songs and listen to a message. We're actually here to celebrate the biggest moment of all time, the moment that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, the moment where he was raised from the dead and conquered sin and death and Satan to give us new life and a new hope inside of him. So I hope you're enjoying this weekend, and I hope you're also enjoying remembering what this weekend means for you. Now, for guys like me, who preach on Easter um, every year, or most years, I know Shane preached last year, we're kind of like bashing our brains, trying to think, how do we preach this in a new way, you know? So this week, what I was doing is I was reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the different biographies of Jesus' life, and just thinking, what do I say this year, Lord? Because for most of us in this room, and for most people living in South Africa, we've heard this stuff before, you know? We've heard the Easter story, we've heard about the cross, we've heard about the tomb, we've heard about Jesus' death and resurrection, we know it all, and it's not just that we preach it once a year, we preach this every week. You should hear this often here in this church, every single Sunday, we're preaching about this, because this is the message of the church. We are the Easter people, and today we celebrate that, but every day, every week, we live out the reality of what He has done, and how that affects and impacts us. And what I was doing is I was reading through the Easter stories and the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And I was thinking, Lord, what do I say this year? You know, what do I say that's different or hopefully new or fresh is going to stand out to us this year? I was kind of struck not by the cross and the resurrection, which sounds terrible, but I was almost struck by all of the other characters and subplots which are going on around Jesus' death and resurrection. So let me just explain what I mean. As you read these different accounts of what happened on the Easter weekend, We read about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the loss of her boy. You can kind of imagine how she was feeling in that moment as she watched her son, who she'd given birth to and raised, all of a sudden crucified and dying this horrible death. There's that moment on the cross as Jesus seems to have sympathy on his mom, not just on the whole world. And he looks down at her and he says, mother, here is your son. And he points to his best friend, John. And he looks at John and he says, John, here is your mother. It's like he's joining them together. As he does, he knows that they will at least have one another and his mother will be taken care of. Thought of Judas and his story. You know, Judas, this disciple of Jesus, who'd spent a lot of time with him over the years, all of a sudden he decides, I'm going to betray Jesus, this man that I know, this friend of mine, for 20 pieces of silver. And then he watches Jesus die on the cross. And then a few days later, he takes his own life, filled with shame and guilt and pride. I thought of Mary Magdalene. Now, if you know her story, there's a movie coming out about her soon, which I really want to encourage you not to watch. It's a terrible, non-biblical, non-historical account of her life, and it will not help you in your faith. But there's this amazing thing as we read through the Bible about her life. Actually, we see this woman who lived a life of sin, shared some stories. She lived a life which was marked by evil, and she was filled with demons. And Jesus set her free from all of this. And she came into this new moment of devotion and dedication to him, where even as he died, she was one of the first at the tomb, there to anoint him and celebrate him and remember him even in his death. Think about Simon of Cyrene. He wasn't someone who knew Jesus. He was in the crowd as Jesus was carrying the cross up that hill. And actually, as Jesus collapsed, he couldn't do it anymore. Someone pulled Simon in to carry the cross with Jesus. He didn't have a choice about it, but all of a sudden, he was written into the story of Easter and into uh, Jesus' story. And from then on, his family and his life would be marked by what Jesus had done. 
And I thought of doubting Thomas. Maybe you kind of fit into that category today. Thomas, who had traveled with Jesus, but when he hears, no, Jesus has been raised from the dead, says, I'll believe it when I see it. Once I can put my fingers in his side, I can see those holes in his hands and feet. Then I'll believe that Jesus really is who he says he is. Then I'll really believe that he's the Messiah and he's been raised from the dead. And as you read through all of these accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection, there's a whole bunch of other characters and subplots going on which are connected into the story of Jesus. And while I was thinking of that, I was thinking about something a little bit more shallow. Shell and I, kind of end of last year and maybe beginning of this year, have been watching some sitcoms again. So at the moment, for any of you, uh, you that are fans, we've been watching The Office. Anyone a big Office fan here? The U.S. version, not the U.K. version. Damien, okay, there's like two of you. You guys are so lame today. But we've been watching that, and we've been laughing a lot. And I kind of watched this on my own, but I was re-watching a lot of Friends over the last while. I know there's some Friends fans in the room too. And as you watch Friends, this happened for 10 seasons, you know. 10 years, the show went on and on and on. And every episode, you'd be introduced to some new characters or some new plots. There was a ton going on. So just a few for you, just to remind you. We were introduced to Phoebe's twin sister, who was very, very different from her. We were introduced to Chandler and Janice's on-again, off-again relationship. And you remember her shrill, nasal voice every time she entered back into the sitcom? What about Joey's career, particularly as Dr. Drake Ramore in the days of our lives? Now, I know some of you, your, your minds are starting to tick as you remember Friends and some of your favorite episodes. I was thinking about Joey and Chandler's duck and chicken. And Ross's monkey, remember those moments? And Central Perk, where so much of the action happens. And Gunther, the very interesting barista, behind the counter with his peroxide blonde hair and his infatuation for Rachel. All of that is going on in the show. But really, the whole show is centered around the big idea of Ross and Rachel's relationship. You know, for 10 seasons, 236 episodes, there's all of this stuff going on. But really, the big idea is will they, won't they? Are Ross and Rachel going to get together? And if you haven't seen it, I want you to know they conclude it right in the last episode. So you need to watch the whole way through. But the whole idea is just like with Easter, there's this big story of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And there's all these subplots and other characters around the big story. It's the same with our lives. Today, as we remember Jesus and what he's done for us, I'm hoping as I preach today, I'm going to help you to connect your story to his story, your life to his death and resurrection, and help you to see how this is relevant and real and important for all of us here today. H.G. Wells said this, I'm a historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. The main story is about him, who he is, and what he's done. And Jesus said this of himself in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And that's my hope today. We look again at the big story of Easter. I'm sure most of you know it at least slightly. And today we see how our small subplot, our small story, fits into his big story, which is the big story not just of the New Testament or the church, but of history and of the universe and of everything else. And I've already mentioned a whole bunch of these characters and their subplots and how they tie in. But I think probably the character who we can relate to the most is Peter. If you know anything about Peter's story, you know that he is an ordinary guy like you and I. He is far from perfect. He messes up all of the time. But actually, he's the kind of guy that you and I can see ourselves in. So if you've never heard of him before, Peter was an ordinary fisherman who Jesus came up to and said, come and follow me. And for three years, he had this opportunity to follow Jesus all around the Middle East. 
as Jesus was preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons and doing miracles, Peter had this front row seat to see it all go down. And over time, Jesus would send Peter and the other disciples out, and they would do the stuff Jesus had been doing. Peter, this ordinary fisherman, would go out and he would preach messages and he would heal the sick and he would minister to people and he was following in Jesus' footsteps. God was using him in an amazing way, but he was far from perfect. He had issues. And in one of the situations just before Jesus' death, all of the disciples are together and Jesus tells them that he is going to go to the cross and when he dies, all of them are going to scatter. Like that would be a little bit humbling for you. Imagine I said that here. Guys, I just want to let you know, I'm going to die pretty soon, and this church is going to close, and you're all going to go off in different directions. You'd be gutted, you know, you'd be devastated. And Peter, rather confidently, stands up in the midst of the disciples and says this, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Quite a bold moment, eh? I was trying to picture this in my mind. They're sitting together, they're sitting around, and when Jesus says that, Peter stands up almost obnoxiously, says, Jesus, that's not true. They might all like fail. They might all fall away. And he points at James and John and Andrew and Simon and Judas and all of the disciples. He says, all of them are weaker than me. They might fall away. They might betray you, but not me. I'll stay strong right to the end. Looks down their nose at them, full of confidence. He puffs out his chest as he says it. And then Jesus looks him in the eyes and says these devastating words. Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now, if that was me, Jesus looked me in the eyes and said that to me, I would firstly believe him. You know, if this is someone's, if Jesus is speaking, the one you've given up your life to follow, Lord, God, Messiah, Savior, you've been following him everywhere, and he tells you this. You've seen the miracles, you've seen the healings, you know this man is filled with the power of God. He sees supernatural things all the time. He tells you you're going to fail. I'd believe him, and secondly, I'd be devastated. Just the thought that actually I would deny him and fail him in this moment of need, I would like probably be on my hands and knees. I'd say, Jesus, please, no. Please save me. Don't let this happen. This would break my heart, but not Peter. Peter looks Jesus back in the eyes. Maybe he points at him, and he says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Imagine that. Peter thinks he knows better than Jesus. You're wrong, Jesus. I'm right. I know. I would never do something like that. But Jesus is correct. A little bit later, three times, Peter denies Jesus. And years later, when Peter's kind of dealt with his denial and his failings, he um, humbly writes an account of the life of Jesus through his scribe, Mark. And when Mark talks about this third denial, he writes about it this way, probably the most harsh and exposing of any of the accounts. And he says in verse 71 and 72 of Mark 14, But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now listen, some of the other accounts mention that the third person to accuse him of knowing Jesus and being one of his disciples was a young girl. I think Peter chooses to leave that out because he doesn't want that like recorded in history. He doesn't want anyone to know that he lost it when a young girl accused him. Someone shorter than him, far weaker than him. He didn't want anyone to know. But he does want to expose the fact that he responded terribly in that moment. As he's accused for the third time, he swears, I, I beeping don't know him, okay? I don't know this man. And on top of that, he, he rains down this curse on himself. The only way I can kind of think about it is almost like we would say, I swear on my mother's life. I don't know this Jesus, you know? I invoke a curse. Let me be cursed if what I say to you is not the truth. And as he says these words, 
like all of a sudden the rooster crows and he says, oh, it's true. What Jesus said is true. I told him he was wrong. I said I would never fail. I would never deny him. But what he said is true. I've betrayed and denied Jesus. He made all of these bold statements, puffed out his chest. He was so proud and arrogant. He acted like he was bulletproof, like he would never fail. Any of the other disciples could fail, but never him. He was the one guy who was strong enough, tough enough, big enough. He would never go down like they would. And as the crow, as the rooster crows, he realizes Jesus was right. It's true. And he needs God's grace. He's not strong enough in himself. Now, I want you to think just a little bit more about this situation. Peter was a professional Christian. For three years, he'd been a pastor, a preacher. He'd been following Jesus around and kind of learning how to do this ministry stuff. So he was someone like me. Now, this is Good Friday, and Peter is denying Christ. Now, we didn't have a Good Friday service this year, but imagine me today, Resurrection Sunday. I stand up in front of this church, and I say, guys, listen, I don't really know what all the fuss is about. I don't know if Christ is real. I'm not a follower of his. If I denied Christ this morning, I hope firstly you'd go to Brendan or Shane and say, we've got a real problem with Grant. We're worried about that. I should not be preaching for a while. Or if we carried on saying this stuff, you should leave this church. You know, that would be terrible. But Peter, one of Jesus's 12, one of the leaders, the inner like circle of Jesus, the inner three, denies Christ, not just on any day and not just on any Easter, but the first Easter. This is as Christ is going to the cross, Peter is down the hill denying him. It's like one of the biggest failings I can imagine, you know. He's professionally ruined. He can't carry on as a pastor anymore. He can't, he can't carry on as a preacher. He's denied Christ, and everyone will know. He's got to go back to fishing or something else. He can't carry on in this line of work. But more than just that, he's personally ruined, you know. He's thought of himself in this way. I'm Peter. I'm the strong one. I can overcome anything. I can do anything. I'm strong enough. I'm tough enough. I've got enough grit. And all of a sudden, he's been exposed as a fraud and as a fake. It's not true, Peter. You are not who you think you are. It's like his heart is laid bare in that second as that rooster crows. And all of a sudden, Peter sees who he really is. Peter dies in that moment. And those three denials of his reveal his humanity, his frailty, and his sin and the deep need that he has for the grace of God to restore him and change his life. And I wanted to ask you today, a room full of people, we've all got our stories and our pasts. Have you ever failed in a way that has left you feeling devastated? Maybe it's a failed marriage, or maybe it's a failed business opportunity, or maybe it's a failed relationship or family or whatever it is. Maybe it's not even something public. You know, Peter's failure was public. Everyone knew. And maybe you've lied about something and people have found you out and you've been embarrassed. Or maybe you failed in a way that is super private and only you and God know this failure, but it's eating you alive. Peter failed in this kind of way. Have you maybe failed in a way that you need to be restored from? I'm not the biggest sports guys. Everyone in this church knows if they've been around for a while. So I followed on News 24 a little bit this week as there's been this ball tampering scandal between South Africa and Australia. But on Friday, we were with some family, and my cousin's husband is cricket crazy. And he was telling me just a little bit more about the story of Steve Smith and the confession he'd made as he got him back to Australia. So me thinking, oh, Easter's coming up. This sounds like an amazing preaching illustration. I went online, and I watched this video, and I really want to encourage you to watch it. Go online and watch this clip. I think we've got a photo, and if you can put it up. This is Steve Smith with his father standing at his left side, comforting him as he confesses and apologizes to his nation. 
for tampering and cheating and failing in this game against South Africa. So I just wanted to read you what he says as he fights for his own breath and as he fights through tears and emotion. To fans of cricket all around the world and to Australians who are disappointed and angry, I'm sorry. What happened in Cape Town has already been laid out by Cricket Australia. Tonight, I want to make clear, as captain of the Australian cricket team, I take full responsibility. I made a serious error of judgment, and I now understand the consequences. It was a failure of leadership, my leadership. I'll do everything I can to make up for my mistake and the damage it has caused. If any good can come of this, it can be a lesson to others, then I hope it can be a force for change. I know I'll regret this for the rest of my life. I'm absolutely gutted. I hope in time I can earn back respect and forgiveness. I've been so privileged and honored to represent my country and captain the Australian cricket team. Cricket is the greatest game in the world. It's been my life, and I hope it can be again. I'm sorry, and I'm absolutely devastated. As I watched that, I was super moved. Um, and I just thought, really, Steve Smith has had a Peter moment. You know, he thought, I'll be fine. And they decided, I'm going to deny the rules of the game. And all of a sudden, the rooster crowed. And they were caught out. On camera, there's video footage, there's photos. They've done it. They were exposed. And his life changed in a second. He was professionally ruined, you know. He will not play professional cricket for the next year. On top of that, he's lost his captaincy of the Australian team for the next two years. And everyone knows that he is a failure and that he has cheated in the sport. But I think beyond that, he has been personally ruined. I want you to think of this man at the heart of his career, captaining the Australian team. He's got an incredible contract with the IPL. He's just lost a million dollars a year or whatever it was. On top of that, he is a hero for children and sports lovers around the world. He is world famous. And all of a sudden, some of the stuff in his heart has been exposed. You know, his humanity, his frailty, his brokenness, his sin, his need for grace. He is a cheater, and as he says of himself, it's absolutely devastating. Steve Smith has had his Peter moment. I want to ask you today, have you had a moment like that? And I thought about him and going back to Australia, you know, being sent back, really being banished from South Africa for cheating in this way, and having to face his family. I don't know as he got off the plane who was there to greet him, if there was a mob of angry Australians or just his family or what it was, but he had to speak to his parents, to his kids. He had to speak to his friends. He had to speak to all sorts of people around him and then get up in front of the nation on camera and apologize for what he had done after reading all of the articles that had slandered him. And if you've been on social media or read any of the comments on those articles, how harshly people have treated him for what he has done. Imagine the courage to get up and do that. And then I want to go back to Peter for a second. Imagine Peter. He's denied Christ. He's been exposed. He's had this huge crisis. And now all of a sudden, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he realizes, I'm going to have to face Jesus. He knows. He told me I would deny him. I said, no ways, Jesus. He knows I've done it. And now we need to have a really orky porks conversation where I talk to him about my denial. You know, I wonder what that would have looked like, that elephant in the room. And we see as you read those accounts, a number of times where Jesus and Peter and the other disciples are in the same room together but they don't get a moment to talk. But then in John 21, verse 15, if you can turn in your Bibles or you can follow along on the screen behind me, Jesus and Peter get a bit of a moment together when they can speak about the sin and failure. In true Durban style, they get to have it around a bra on the beach 
perfect setting for a redemption story. And it says in verse 15 to 18, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I want you just to remember back a little bit. Matthew 26, verse 33. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And it's like Jesus, I wonder if he was imitating how Peter had acted in that moment, maybe pointing at the other disciples. You know, though they all fail, I will never fail. Jesus, looking around with other disciples there, says, do you love me more than these, Peter? Must have been a very humbling moment as Jesus took out the surgeon's scalpel to do heart surgery on him. Peter denied Jesus three times, so Jesus asked him three times, do you love me, to restore him and heal him. And almost this must have been like a bloody, messy situation. I like to think of Peter almost lying there on the, be- on the beach, yeah, just like someone having open heart surgery. It's like Jesus has opened up his chest and his guts everywhere, and it's just a mess. But it's not a mess so that Jesus can expose and shame Peter. It's a mess so that he can heal him and save him and forgive him and give him a new life. That is the whole point of what is going on in the beach here. Jesus is the great physician. He is the great healer, and he's doing some of his greatest work here. And one of the things I've said this morning is Peter's story is one of these subplots of the big Easter story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And we've seen the death and resurrection of Christ. We've sung about it today, but here on the beach, we see the death and the resurrection of Peter. You see, when that rooster crowed, Peter died. The old Peter was gone. He would never be the same again. But now on the beach, Jesus is restoring him and giving him a new life. It's a new Peter raised from the dead. Imagine being part of a moment like that. Do you notice in the story that Jesus never mentions Peter's sin? It's quite interesting. eh? He never says to him, Peter, I want you to leave here and never lie again, never be a coward again, never deny me again. He never says any of that stuff. I wonder if you've ever thought why. Be easy for him to say, hey, Peter, about those three denials, I told you so and to get in uh, Peter's face for what he said. But Jesus never does that because he's not just interested in Peter changing externally. He doesn't just want this behavioral change. He wants his heart to change. He's pulled out the scalpel, and he's asking these questions because he wants Peter to be transformed by the power of grace. So he goes straight to the root and asks, do you love me more than these? And Peter replies, and he says, yes, Lord, I love you. But at the same time, what Peter is saying is, no, Lord, I was proud. I don't love you more than the rest of these. No, Lord, I was proud. I thought I was different. I was special. I was stronger. I was better. But actually, I see I'm ordinary and I'm broken and I'm in need of your grace and your love. Would you help me? I need you. And on that beach, it's like Peter all of a sudden turns from looking at himself and his stress and even his sin and his junk and looks at Jesus and the fact that he is able to help him and provide for him and care for him. And Peter, who his whole life has been focused on how, I guess, his self-image is based on his spiritual performance. You know, if he just does more and he's stronger and he's better than anyone else, how he will be approved of by God. All of a sudden, he's not trusting in himself anymore. He's trusting in the grace of God. He's trusting in Jesus and what he's done. This is a whole new Peter, a resurrected Peter, a Peter with a completely new life. And there on that beach, as Peter lies there and Jesus opens him up, he finds a new hope and a new identity and a new salvation and a new joy. He finds a new joy after the grief he's felt after his denial and betrayal. 
one of Shell's favorite moments of the movie Dunkirk. Anyone seen the movie Dunkirk? All of a sudden, World War II has become really popular. If you've seen The Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, there's a few movies out at the moment that are amazing. But really, the historical story of Dunkirk is that England was about to lose World War II. It was like really on a knife's edge. It was a crazy moment. And Winston Churchill basically went to the English people and said, would you take your boats across the channel and bring back as many of our boys as we can? 400,000 soldiers on the beach. If they lose them, the war is over. England is over. Germany are going to win. It's a game-changing moment. And it's an incredible moment in history, a real redemption story, that they were able to get all of these men back to home. And there's this moment right at the end of the film, Dunkirk, where these boys have gotten back to the other side and they're in the train, either going home or back to barracks, wherever it is, and they are covered in dirt. They are filthy, they're down, they're tired, they're hungry. You can just imagine how flat and lifeless they must have been feeling. And Harry Styles from One Direction, anyone with a young daughter would know about Harry Styles. He's the heartthrob of the movie, sitting there, and he's covered in dirt, he's hungry, he's flat, he's down. They have failed the English people, you know? They did not win on the other side, so the English people had to come and save them and take them home. And he's sitting there in this uh, carriage with his friend, and as they pull into the train station, he turns his back to the window, and he puts his head down, and he says to his friend, I can't. I can't look. I just can't. And imagine the shame and the guilt over what they've done. And now they're going back to see the people who are probably going to mock them and make fun of them because they haven't been able to win the war. And there's this knocking at the window as they go into the train station. And he turns away. He can't look. He covers his face up. Another knock, another knock. And then he hears like a clink on the window. And he turns. And there's a man standing with two beer bottles, clinking them on the window. And they pass them through. And his face changes straight away from shame and guilt to celebration and joy. They're passing beer bottles through the window. They're passing food through the window. Children are cheering. The people are so happy. Our boys have come home. It's this moment that should have been a moment of failure, but it's become a moment of celebration. It's not about what they haven't done on the other side of the channel. It's about the fact that they've come home. And for you and I, maybe today could be that moment, whether you know Jesus or not, a moment of coming home to God from what you've been through, shame, guilt, failure, mess-ups, whatever it is. Actually, God does not want to shame you. You don't have to cover your face or feel bad. It's almost like God is cheering you on, come home, come home. And for Peter on that beach... That was his Dunkirk train station moment. Almost as um, Jesus is speaking to him and doing this heart surgery, as God changes him, he feels like the clink of those glasses on the window. It's like angels are there, passing him beers, passing him food to eat, you know, saying, welcome home, welcome home. And that is the picture Jesus gives us of heaven and of salvation. In Luke 15, verse 7 and 10, the Bible says this, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, just so I tell you, as there is joy, sorry, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And it's like heaven is saying, Jesus is saying, God is saying to all of us, as we come home to him, there is celebration. As we turn, it doesn't matter your failure, your sin, your mess ups, whatever you might have done. Those angels are clinking the beers on the window to say, welcome home. It's so good to see you. And I had this moment this week where I needed to call someone in my life who had failed, who had sinned, who'd messed up in a way. It's not someone who's part of this church. But it was one of those hard conversations where I was hoping that actually God's work would happen in their life. And as Shell and I were talking, saying, should I make the call or not? You know, is it worth it or not? 
The question that was going on inside me is, is the gospel going to change their life? Can they be restored? Can their sin be forgiven? Can God actually give them new life or a new story after their failure and their mess up and their sin? And I believe he can. Not just for you, not just for me, but for everyone. I believe he can give us new life in himself. And I believe that because Jesus has paid the price for us sin in full. I think probably every one of us in this room have gone to a shop and bought something we really wanted, you know. Maybe it was a shirt or a pair of jeans or a pair of shoes, something. And as we've walked out of that store, those scanners on the side have started to beep. The alarm has gone up. Woo, woo, woo. And you feel absolutely mortified. It's like the worst thing in the whole world. You've got this packet in your hand. Everyone is looking at you. The alarms are going. The security guard who's been sleeping in the corner all of a sudden has his baton out. He's ready for action. He's like, at least I get to take them to mall jail. But if they put up a fight, I get to hit them with a baton. This is like the highlight of the day. And the manager or someone comes over, and they only care about one thing. They don't care about what's in your bag. They don't care about anything other than do you have a receipt. Do you have a receipt? If you've got a receipt, you're fine. You don't have to pay again. That alarm can go off 10,000 times, and you don't have to pay again. You're fine. But if you don't have a receipt, you're getting cuffed, you're going to mall jail, that baton is going to come down on you, you know? And for so many of us here, we don't believe that's true. Christ has paid the price for our sins in full. There's a receipt. He is the receipt for our sins. Paid in full. That alarm can go off. Tomorrow morning, you could sin worse than you've ever sinned in your whole life. That alarm goes, woo, 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 sin, sin, sin. And we feel terrible and we're embarrassed about it all. But the reality is we've got the receipt. Jesus has died for our sins, paid in full. We are forgiven. We are set free. It doesn't matter what accusations you face. We've got the receipt. We have the receipt. And so many of us in this room, so many Christians today are trying to pay back that amount every single time we mess up. We forget that we've got the receipt. We forget he's done it all. We forget the price has been paid in full. So every single day we're living under this low-level guilt about what we've done and what we haven't done and how we failed and how we've messed up. And we're constantly trying to do more and be more and be better and all of these things. And the alarm is constantly going and we'll never be enough. We'll never be enough. But that receipt says paid in full. Paid in full. Your sins are forgiven. Christ has done it all. He loves you. He accepts you. And there has been that Dunkirk Beach moment or train station moment for you. There has been that Peter Beach moment for you. There has been, hopefully, in Steve Smith's story, a transformation and a change that is available to all of us. I want you to know Jesus has died on the cross that your sins can be forgiven and paid for in full. But he hasn't just done that. You don't just get to leave here today feeling completely clean and completely free. He also gives us a new life. He gives us a new life free from the past, a new life with huge opportunity to live the things that we've struggled at before. The Holy Spirit wants to empower us to do that. And if you're here today, I want you to know, just like Jesus was raised from the dead, God can raise your marriage from the dead. Just like Jesus was raised from the dead, God can raise your debt or your financial situation from the dead. Just like Jesus was raised from the dead, whatever situation you find yourself in today, whatever failure or sin might be eluding you, God can raise you from the dead to a new life inside of him. And God can bring victory out of the greatest failures. This morning as I was preparing for this, I just thought of how weak Jesus must have looked on that cross. That moment of him dying, being nailed there, naked, bloody, shamed, must have looked like his weakest moment of ministry. It must have looked like his greatest defeat, his greatest failure. But somehow God was able to take Jesus' greatest failure and greatest defeat and flip it to be the greatest victory of all time. 
And I believe the same for you today. That is the business that Jesus is involved in. Taking broken, messed up, failed situations and flipping them over to be stories of redemption and new life inside of him. Today, God would love you to die. Die to your sin. Die to your old life. Die to the bits of shame and failure and pain that you feel. And he would love to resurrect you and raise you to a new life in him. Can I ask that we stand together? We're going to sing one song just as a response. And I trust that God would minister to us and meet you where you're at today. But can I just pray for us? Can I ask you to close your eyes if you're comfortable doing that? One of the things we believe is it's not what we do, it's what Jesus has done, what he has done for us. And today I'm trusting if you have a struggle, if you have a need, that what Jesus has done is enough for you. So I ask you, Lord, today for everyone here who is struggling, who feels like a failure, who's wrestling with shame or guilt, that even now that you would raise them from the dead and that you would take some of that stuff off of them, that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the price has been paid in full and they don't have to do anything to earn your love. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone in this room today who walked in today not knowing you, but today wants to know you, wants to begin to follow you, wants to start a new life in you, even now, if that's you, what you can do is hand your sin over to God, hand it all over to him, ask him to give you new life, to raise you from the dead. And Lord, we pray for those miracles around this room now. I pray for myself every area of struggle and sin and brokenness and failing, I pray you would make me new. And I pray for us as a church that we would know that the price is paid in full so that alarm goes off this afternoon or tomorrow or later in the week, that we wouldn't try and do more or work harder or prove ourselves, but that we would remember the truth that it is paid, that we have the receipt, that you've done enough. Help us to believe that and live in that and help us to live a new life in you, I pray. Amen.